Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hey, this is Justin. This is episode 101 of APM Success. I'm really pleased to be joined today by Jim Giese. Jim is a CPA, a JD, and a um, healthcare tax expert with Whipfully. He's also a partner there. Um, Jim, thanks for joining us today. Justin, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Uh, I've been having some really interesting conversations with Jim and his team, and it's awesome to have a group with deep tax expertise in healthcare. And Jim, one of the things that I see regularly, and I know you see with your clients, is this uh, the overlap in the medical community between the physician's job and business interests that sometimes, uh, you know, enter the picture. And whether it's a, we're going to talk about today in the context of a surgery center or, uh, you know, other ancillary streams of income or self-employment income, consulting, anything like that. This is frequently a topic that is really important and highly nebulous and unknown for physicians who are just getting into that. So is this something that you see in, in your tax practice? Absolutely. We have, we have a number of, of our physician clients that have ownership interests in ASCs and other partnership type organizations. So it, that's a frequent ownership. One thing that I really like as a financial advisor is encouraging uh, alternative streams of income, getting paid from as many places as possible. So something you probably see when you're doing a physician's tax return, maybe they have a W-2, maybe they have a K-1, maybe they have a couple 1099s. Talk a little bit about sort of what that means. I'm, I'm using all these numbers for tax forms. When you see a stack of documents, and you see a handful of those specific ones, what does this tell you about this client? Right, so most people know what a W-2 is. You're used to that from early on when you go to work for someone and you're an employee, the taxable amount of your income and the tax withheld is reported to you on the W-2. And, and obviously also that's sent to the IRS. So the IRS every year compares what they got from the employer on the W-2 to what you put on your tax return. Uh, so everybody's pretty familiar with a W-2. If you have an ownership interest in an entity that is a partnership, and what you frequently hear is the entity structured as an LLC, and people frequently say, you know, what type of an entity is it? It's an LLC. That, that certainly is the legal structure and is a very common structure in a partnership type setting. An LLC can be a, a C corporation, an S corporation, or a partnership. What we most likely see is a partnership. And so if you have an interest in an ASC that is taxed as a partnership, probably created as an LLC, what you'll receive is a K-1 from that partnership. And I always think of it as it's like your W-2 from that partnership. So the partnership itself doesn't pay tax. The income and any losses that the partnership itself has, uh, it files a tax return to calculate the amount of that net income or net loss. And then the K-1 shows you as the partner, what is your share of that uh, 
partners of the partner's income or loss. Great. So to put sort of corners and edges to this get, and give a concrete example, maybe we'll see, for example, uh, a surgery center, like owner operator type company, and, and these exist out there. They open a surgery center. They say, we're going to provide the infrastructure. We'll pay for the building. We'll staff it. We'll run all the operations. And then we'll have a handful of physician partners. So say there's a, a 50% majority ASC incorporated that owns half of it. And then they have maybe five physicians who are all also partners at say 10% each. And so each of those physician partners in the format that you just described in a partnership taxation situation, each of those physician partners owns a 10% share of any profits or of any losses that may occur. And then the ASC incorporated is going to receive a total of 50% according to their partnership share. Is that accurate? Yes, it is. And, and, it can certainly be more complicated than that if you want it to be more complicated. Uh, there, are, there are all kinds of ways that you can allocate income and losses out of a partnership that's other than the ownership percentage. So as you're entering into that type of an investment, it is important to look at the two paragraphs in that document, in that, that partnership agreement, or if it's an LLC, an operating agreement is, how is income and loss going to be allocated to each partner? Because it might not be in accordance with ownership percentage. Partnerships allow you to do that. And then you would also want to look at, typically there's a separate paragraph that talks about distributions of income and making sure that you understand as a partner in that partnership, how much cash is going to come out. And that's going to be, uh, how it's defined in that distribution section of the operating agreement. That's a great point. First of all, I love that you just pointed out looking at the operating agreement, which is going to define the guts of how the business runs, right? And if you're an owner in a business, then as a part owner, you want to understand these rules and understand how the income is going to be allocated. And I think you hit on another really important point there, which is distribution of cash. Because if you're entitled to you know, 10% of the profits of a surgery center over the course of 12 months, that might be a meaningful number. And so that profit is going to be ascribed to you by the IRS, say it's $100,000 a profit. However, that may be different from the cash that you actually get from the LLC. So talk a little bit about that dynamic. Absolutely, that's a, that's a great point uh, because the, the terminology, not to get too geeky, but the income is allocated. So it's whatever the income that the business has and cash is distributed. And most people don't, don't understand that even if they didn't get any cash at all out of that partnership, if the partnership had income, they will have to pay tax on that income. So one of the things that I learned relatively early on in my career is you want to make sure that in that distribution section, there's a requirement to do tax distributions. I've seen it. Uh, uh, I've seen it where it made sense for the business to hold on to all the cash that they had because they knew they were going into a dip, uh, but there was taxable income for that year. So you want to make sure that that partnership is going to at least give you the cash to pay the tax on the income that will be allocated to you. 
That's a great point. So to take sort of the inverse example and describe this for our listeners, there may be a case in which the surgery center makes a million bucks of profit. That million dollars is an asset of the surgery center sitting in a bank account with the surgery center's name on it. You're going to get a K-1 that says as a 10% owner of that million dollars worth of profit, 100000 of that is yours. And so $45,000 may be the taxes due on that amount of income. However, you may never have seen a penny of it because it's all been retained in the checking account of the LLC. So what you're describing is this really important language to say that in the event that taxes are due, that there are distributions at least in the amount of those taxes so that you can pay your tax bill without needing to pay that 45 grand from your personal checking account. Exactly right. Exactly right. And that, that is a very important point to understand. And it's commonly confused. Yeah, and very painful, obviously, right? If you get a tax bill on cash that you sort of earned but haven't seen yet, that's not a great situation. And if you think about the business dynamics, you know, here's the other side of this coin is as a business owner, if we need to hire two physicians and maybe bring on some other staff and invest in some infrastructure, maybe we need to retain some of that cash as like the war chest for operations. And so there's this a little bit of a balancing act between keeping your business you know, checking account funded to keep the business open, in this case, a surgery center, and distributing cash as your rightful due as the owner of a profitable venture. So that's something that you and your four other physician partners and the, you know, the, the majority owner are going to have to sort of put your heads together and figure out how to do, which actually, Jim, this is another point. Talk a little bit about how decisions are made in this type of situation and how that's defined. Well, and typically because You've got this LLC, and it's usually um, managed by a member. And usually, in your example, that 50% ASC Inc. is probably the manager. And you want that to some degree to give you some protection against liability, which I'm getting a little bit beyond my expertise as a tax person. But by limiting your ability to to control the decisions that are made by the organization also provides you with a layer of, of, of protection against some liability. And again, um, every state's going to be different. Every situation is going to be different. So I just make that comment as kind of a general observation. Um, so by, by doing so, by limiting your ability to control those decisions, you uh, limit your liability, but then that is what makes it also very important to have this language in the operating agreement that says you'll receive a tax distribution because you're not really meddling in the decisions of the entity. At that point, you're merely enforcing your rights as an owner of the business. Absolutely. And this is another area in which there's this tension between being far enough away from the decision-making that you're not you know, legally liable, perhaps. And by the way, we're going to put a nice disclaimer at the beginning of this. So make sure you have a qualified attorney, look at any language and apply it to your state and your situation. Um, you, being far enough away that you're not involved in the minutia, because maybe you don't care. Like, are we sourcing materials from company A or company B or company C or like making those types of operational decisions? Maybe you're not interested in that. So you want to authorize the operator of the surgery center to make those decisions. But there may be other decisions like, are we going to admit a new partner? Are we going to hire a physician that is perhaps a big expense? 
to be doing procedures. Um, you may want to have infrastructure in the operating agreement or elsewhere to help you have a say in those critical decisions. So th there's this this balance that as a business owner, you, you need to be aware of. Right. So then the other side of this is we've been talking about what happens if there's income. The other question is, well, what happens if there's a loss? Uh, what, what if what if it has a loss, which is not uncommon early on in the in in the life of uh, an ASC? So there are two limitations, broad limitations that you would want to consider. The first is, you know, there's passive versus active limitations, and this goes back to the 1986 Act that was designed to make sure that people were investing in businesses for purposes to make a profit. So you were doing it for economic reasons and not merely to get a tax loss. And so that's why these rules came into play. And so there's seven different ways that you can be considered materially participating in an act, in a, in a investment that you have. And to the most common one is, are you working 500 hours in that surgery center, and then, then you would be actively participating, but you also have to contrast the hours that you're there just doing surgery is not necessarily, you're not necessarily working for that ASC. You probably have your own practice that you're using the ASC, so those hours wouldn't count. So more likely than not, this will be a passive activity. And so what that means is if it's a loss, that loss cannot be taken uh, until unless you have other passive income. So if you have other investments that have passive income, those can offset each other, but there would be a limit on your ability to take that loss. You don't lose the loss. It carries forward to future years. So the loss you can't cannot take this year, say there's income in the in the next year, well, then the prior year loss is going to be able to be used to offset the income in the current year. So again, if we use an example and say I make $400,000 in W-2 wages from a practice where I'm an employee, I also have a surgery center that has a $50,000, 50000 passive loss because I don't work 500 hours in that surgery center. Um, there's this loss that if, if it was active, I could use it to offset my wages of 400K in the current year, but it's passive. So it's a different type of loss. I could use it to offset passive income if I have some, as I might if I was a real estate landlord, for instance, but I can't use it to offset my wages. Is that what you're saying, Jim? Correct. Correct. That's exactly right. Uh, and, and again, you don't lose it. It carries forward until such point in time in the future that there's income. And it doesn't have to be passive income from that specific activity, as you pointed out, maybe I have a, a rental real estate, which by definition is passive, and that kicks off income, well then the, my ASC passive loss could be used to offset that passive income. And just to be clear, the what we're describing is a very technical definition that has to do with thresholds and definitions and even how your operating agreement is structured. And if you have power under the terms of the operating agreement, so this is definitely something where you want to lean on a qualified CPA and an attorney to interpret 
your document, your situation, your income, and make sure that these principles are being applied properly. Yeah, exactly right. And and then there's another limitation, and that is basis limitation, that you essentially, you cannot take losses that you haven't, in my mind, you haven't paid for. So when you invested, you put $100,000 into this ASC. So now you have $100,000 that you've put at risk uh, and is, is your money. And so you can take losses, still got this passive loss limitation that we talked about, but you could take losses up to that $100,000 because you put that money at risk. And how I think of it is you've paid for, the, you've paid for those losses. Uh, so how could you say, well, how could it happen otherwise? What if you went out to the bank and you borrowed money from the bank, used up all the money that you put in, and now you're losing money that the bank put in? That's how you could have a basis limitation. And, and there again, um, you don't necessarily want to put money in. You wouldn't put a dollar in to create basis to get a tax deduction because you're getting whatever you're getting, 35, 40 cents back on the dollar. But you want to track that so that at, at, at the point in time in the future, if there's income, that creates basis. So you, you track that. But, but again, keep in mind, you're only going to be able to deduct up to the amount of money that you've put in. And without getting too far into the weeds, if you are personally liable for debt that the business takes on, that also creates basis. So if you, in my example, where you went out and went to the bank, if you personally guaranteed that debt to the bank, then that would create, you've got that risk of loss. Now, the reason that you went into an LLC and you have someone else managing it is so that you don't have that liability. So you're probably not going to want to do that um, because you don't want to take on that risk, but that would be how you could create additional basis beyond the money that you've put in yourself. Makes sense. And there are probably some circumstances in which a bank would require a personal guarantee from partner physicians if a surgery center either doesn't have a long history of revenue production or is new or whatever. And so these are certainly dynamics that could come into play. What I generally see, and I'm curious in your feedback on this, Jim, is you know over the life cycle of a surgery center, uh, you open, uh, there's a lot of upfront costs, some of which is amortizable, some of which is expenses to get stocked on you know materials and equipment and, and things. Um, and so at the beginning, you're either reporting very little income or perhaps a loss for a year or two. That can actually be a, a strategic window to do other you know, for example, Roth conversions or something like that, where you can, there's tax planning opportunity there. And then once the income ramps up at the surgery center, and then you're getting that K1, which instead of showing a, you know, $60,000 loss is showing a $100,000 gain, then you're getting self-employment income that creates a whole new set of tax planning opportunities. So understanding where you're at in the life cycle can determine what type of opportunities you may be you may have at your disposal. Yeah, absolutely right. So then what you would want to do is talk with whoever's running it. What are, what are the projections for the next three to five years? What, what do we think this thing's gonna, going to look like? I mean, and you're investing in that for a, a lot of reasons beyond just the profit and loss from that business. There's other 
there's other strategic reasons within your practice that you're doing. But, but as you point out, it would be good to know what the expectation is so that you could plan around it. Um, keeping in mind, you've got this darn passive loss limitation that in those early years, those losses, you might not be able to use um, because of the passive loss limitation. And it's also worth pointing out, and this is where working with you know an expert, uh, an advisor to help you look at the big picture can be valuable and can help manage all these moving parts. It, it creates this unique opportunity. If you can create a passive income opportunity, like if you can, you know, buy a, some sort of a real estate investment that creates passive income there. First of all, that's a very tax advantaged way to earn money to begin with, just because of the way the tax code works, but it's further tax advantaged if you have passive losses that can offset that income even further. So there's a real optimization that can happen there. If, uh, if your circumstances warrant now, there's a whole separate conversation to be had about whether or not that's a good idea. But the point is, it creates this opportunity that that you can. It's good to be aware of. Absolutely, you know, and and you alluded to one other thing about self-employment income, and we've been talking about a K one and what is a K one, and that's I kind of described it as the W two from the business, and and it what it does is it 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 allocates out the income in ways where it should go on the tax return. So interest income, if it has it, is separately stated from the business because that goes on a different place on your return. And then one of the other issues with an LLC is, are you, if you're passive in that activity, is that income subject to self-employment tax? And if you're not actively involved in the business, and again, we're going to disregard the time you spend there maybe performing surgery as a result of your, your main practice, uh, then, then arguably you should not have self-employment income from that practice, or I'm sorry, from the ASC. And so it, it is important for you to look at the, the K-1 that comes, and I don't have a K-1 in front of me, the box that has self-employment income, but that should be zero. So, so if you have a hundred thousand of income, the box on that K ones for self-employment income should be zero. If you are passively involved in that business, if you are running the business, you have a hand in management, then it probably is self-employment income. Another thing to think about here, uh, that introduces a new concept that for people who are just getting involved may want to start thinking about is the idea of how do you pay taxes? on income like this. Um, and so talk a little bit about beginning to get your arms around that. Okay. So it's, it's going to be ordinary income. So it's taxed at ordinary income rates. And, you know, people hear about you talk about ordinary rates and capital gains rates. Well, this is not a capital gains. This is ordinary income. So it gets taxed in terms of rate wise, similar to your ordinary income from your W-2. Um, you're going to, you know, it applies to the state and probably the ASC is just in one state. Um, so we're, we're only worrying about uh, the state that you're in. Um, and then, so how do you pay that tax? It, it, get, it gets balled up with all of your other income. And so you can choose, do I want to increase my withholding on my W-2 
earnings to cover the tax that way, or you can pay quarterly estimated payments. But what you do have to do is you have to pay in at least 90% of the tax that you owe for that year. So it's important for you to be thinking about at the beginning of the year, is there going to be a big change? Justin, you talked about how, you know, there's a, there's a lifespan with these things. And at first they're probably losses and then it gets to be income. So when it flips that first time from being losses to income, then you need to be thinking about how do I pay the taxes that I owe? And you can either increase withholding that you have to cover it, or you can write a quarterly estimated tax payment that's going to be due um, April, June, September, and January is when they're due. Uh, this is really helpful. Any Jim, any other, you know, if someone is just sort of dipping their toe in the pool with surgery center ownership and they want to understand the uh, financial and tax and to some extent legal because they're all like <laughs> they all meet when business ownership happens all these things meet anything else that someone in that circumstance should be thinking about proactively well there you know there's a couple things that i would bring up if i was an investor in one of these and the first one is the section 199a deduction and you know that's a deduction that is scheduled to go away in 2025 so it doesn't have you know, a whole lot of time left, but um, there is an opportunity to deduct 20% of the net income. So essentially you're paying tax on 80% of the income. Uh, whether or not that deduction applies to your organization, uh, it, it, it's, it depends on the facts and circumstances. It depends on the appetite for a little bit of risk. Uh, on whether it applies or not, because there's certain limitations on medical practices. And the argument is, where are we making our money? Is it from the medical or is it, is it from the facility fee? Is it from the nursing assistance, et cetera? So there's some analysis that can be done there. Uh, frankly, it's all over the map in terms of how people are treating it. Some are taking that deduction, some I see they are not. Yeah. And to echo that, I would say as a business owner, you're, you have tax preparers at the entity level and for your own personal affairs that are making decisions that have real impact and that have either that are, that are real in, in their conservative or aggressive approach as it relates to your taxes. And I'm a big fan of outsourcing to experts the thing in which they are experts, but you've got to be aware if you're choosing to be more aggressively postured in these things that are required documentation and are subject to interpretation, just just know that. <laughs> because if you have an unfavorable ruling or uh, there's there's you know new information that changes your circumstance, that can create a surprise bill that you want to not be caught off guard if you see that show up in the mail. Right, and one of the problems with this 199A is it's so new. There is not a lot of you know, there's not court cases out there, you know, so it's, it's an awful lot of interpretation. And, and so there is, there's a certain amount of risk. So if it, if, it, so you have to be aware of that, as you pointed out. And so that would be something you might want to bring up to see, have they considered it? And do they think it makes sense for you to take that deduction? Uh, I, I know we're looking at the research and development credit a little bit to see, 
can that possibly apply uh, to this situation? Um, it's not, it's certain there's another thing that's not certainly cut and dry um, because hopefully, um, you know, there, it's not a lot of experimental work being done um, on routine matters, but, but that's another thing to look at to see if it applies. It may or yes. may not. Yeah, absolutely. So you might be thinking, holy cow, these are a lot of things and I don't even know what half of this stuff means and 199A and R&D credits and like, is this even worth the trouble? Like, why, why would anybody want to do this? And I think it's important to understand to just sort of bring it full circle and say like, yeah, there's a lot of things to think about. There's tax and legal complexity to navigate. There's business making decisions that need to happen. At the end of the day, if you are an equity owner in what hopefully will become a profitable enterprise, you have an asset that is valuable. In addition to the money that's being kicked out to you every month, every quarter, you have that profit that another company, uh, another practice, another, you know, a private equity uh, venture group, something like that, will be willing to pay a multiple of your profit in order to either buy in or buy your share or some other transaction. And that creates a liquidity event to you, meaning you get paid for the value of that asset. This is very different from if you're a W-2, you're an employee, you don't own any equity. If that practice gets sold where you work, you got to just hope that you still have a job by the time the dust settles. Surgery centers and equity participation in them is a really can be a really powerful lever to build wealth for physicians, and they can do the thing that they're good at, practicing you know procedural medicine, and benefit from the profitability of that venture at the same time. Which is why I'm so excited about this in cases where it's appropriate. Uh, Jim, any parting wisdom? No, I think uh, I think hopefully it's a pretty good summary and and uh, kind of covered the area pretty well. Awesome. So uh, on the show notes, I will include Jim's contact info. Uh, him and his team have been immensely helpful for, uh, for me and getting me and my clients up to speed on many of these ideas. Uh, apmsuccess.com slash 101. You can find a summary of the show notes. There's also a really interesting uh, tax court ruling pertaining to ASCs and that active versus passive conversation that Jim and I had. I'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, check it out. Uh, Jim, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of APM Success. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.